You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. We're going to be in the book of James, chapter 5 tonight, and James James chapter 5, and... uh, Picking up, in, if you'll remember the last couple of times we were in James, we looked at having a God complex. And that when you sit on the throne of your life, uh, as if you're in control, as if you're running uh, the joysticks, as if you're steering the wheel, as if you're calling the shots, it'll cause you to have wars and fightings. You'll be at odds with each other. Uh, in a church setting with other people, it'll cause you to speak evil against your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we talked about last time, and it'll call, or two times ago, and it will cause you to live as if God doesn't exist. You'll start to go about your days as if you're planning and you're and and you're making the plans, and and nothing can interfere with that, and you don't consider God at all in your plans. We become practical atheists was the term that we use, and that a God complex is a dangerous way to live because it removes God from the planning and and puts you there in the seat. I mean, a God complex caused Lucifer to be cast out of heaven. It, It caused Adam and Eve to be cast out of the garden because Satan said, you'll be like gods, and that appealed to Adam and Eve, a God complex. If we're not careful, it it will severely limit God's blessings on our life. That's the idea we've been talking about. And tonight our text carries a similar theme. A major part of a God complex is pride. And and a few few things will cause a person to have great pride than when you have a lot of stuff. If you've got a lot of possessions, if you have a lot of money. Now, uh, we've got, you know, we have some men that'll say amen Sometimes, um, Brother Jeremy, Brother Chad, Brother Heath, and others, and they're gone tonight. So, listen, the, the more you say amen, the shorter I will preach. I promise you. Ready? Go. Okay. What is that supposed to mean? Come on. You know, we're going to be dealing with, with that tonight, our possessions, our money. And, and um, I know this isn't the kind of message I would preach um, because I don't necessarily think it's an issue, but when I started studying it, I realized it really can be an issue um, because it's not just people with money that have a problem with money. And we're going to look at that. Uh, So let's stand. James chapter 5, and we'll read the first six verses here. James writes, writes this, Go to now, which means listen up, pay attention. Go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. This is a, an encouraging verse for a nice sto, stormy, 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 snor, snowy, stormy 
Sunday night. You know, I just made up a new word. It's on the internet now. I can't get it back. So um, it's, this can be a depressing, maybe, message. But it's one that we need to hear, especially here in America. We think we're not privileged. We think we're not wealthy. We think, well, you know, when he talks about rich people, he's got, talking about other people. But I was reading some statistics this week from just a few years ago. If you make $20,000 a year, you're top 4% in the whole world. That means you make more than 96% of the world's population. And so let's not assume that God's not talking to us about this problem tonight. And we must pay attention to this because we're all prone to having money possess us instead of us possessing money. And so the message I'd like to give you tonight, I'm just calling it Money Talks. Money Talks. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, thank you for giving us your word and for preserving it. And I pray that you'd help us tonight to give close attention, to pay close attention and give heed to it. And uh, Lord, we we definitely uh, don't want to fall into this trap that some were that James was writing to. And yet I think it's possible for any of us. I just pray for your help. Bless the reading of your word. Help us to pay attention and be focused on it. And we do pray for those in our church congregation who have heavy needs and hearts tonight, Lord, that, that need your encouragement, need your help. And we pray for them as well, that you provide grace in their circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Jesse, good to see you tonight. What, what's the big smile for? Are you happy? But, or have you been sleeping? Okay, a little bit. He's smiling, but there's, you know, his eyes are sagging. No, grateful for him and, and the Marples as well. I said it this morning, but two new babies this week and in the, in the East Side congregation. I'm thankful for that and looking forward to more coming. So, um, in 1923, a group of the world's most successful financiers met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. And collectively, these tycoons um, controlled more wealth than there was in the entire U.S. Treasury. Uh, for years, newspapers would, and magazines would, would print their success stories and tell people to follow their example. Uh, 27 years later, after that meeting in 1923, here's an account what happen, of what happened to those men. One of those men was Charles Schwab. He was the president of one of America's largest steel companies. Uh, he lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life, and he died penniless. Another one of those men was Arthur Cutton. Uh, he was a prominent wheat investor or speculator, they call it. He lost his fortune in the 1929 crash and died while being pursued by the U.S. government for tax evasion. Richard Whitney was the president of the New York Stock Exchange who spent time in prison for embezzlement. Jesse Livermore, the greatest bear in Wall Street, they called him, he, can, he died by committing suicide. Leon Fraser, the president of the Bank of International Settlement, he died by committing suicide. Ivar Kruger, a businessman involved in many ventures, at one point he controlled or produced more than three quarter, about three quarters of the world's match uh, supply, matches. I mean, he was a very wealthy man, had lot, his hands in a lot of things. He died by committing suicide. You know, all of those men had learned to make money, but not one of those men had learned to live life without money being their God. 
and it destroyed them because money makes a terrible master. In our last message in Genesis, James 4, Genesis, I'm still you know, regretting getting out of Genesis, we talked about how a God complex can cause a person to live independently from God in his planning. So, uh, you know, if you have a God complex, if you're full of pride, if you remove God from the throne of your life and place yourself there, um, then you become independent of God. And it's easy for us in our daily lives to live independently from God, not considering him in our thoughts and going through our days without ever considering God. And, but James's message is, is that we must be completely dependent on God every day. And anything that causes us to not be dependent on God is an obstacle to our discipleship. And who are we to think that we can do anything apart from God? I've said this before, and, and I'm thankful uh, for, our, uh, for the pastor's appreciation of my birthday back in the fall. Um, the Adams gave me a, a mug, and I still use it. I love it. It's the verse that's in my office. It says, for without me ye can do nothing. It's the words of Christ in red in John 15. And I tell myself that, I try to tell myself that every time I walk out of my office because if it's up to me, I cannot. I cannot do anything without God. You cannot do anything without God. We can't function. We can't survive long. I mean, spiritually speaking, we won't make it without his help. And who are we to think that we can do anything apart from him? And it's with that thought that James then turns his attention to a group of people that probably are the most likely to try to live independently from God, that group of people is the rich. You know, those with lots of money, those that have lots of wealth and lots of resources, um, they, they have obstacles to overcome when it comes to following Christ. And I know there are some that are wealthy that follow the Lord, but it's an obstacle I mean, Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew 19, then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What it means, I mean, that's impossible. It is. Uh, but rich, though the rich, those with resources, think they can do things on their own. And, God, and Jesus Christ made it very clear um, that, that the rich are less likely to follow Christ because they've got it made. They've got everything they need. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is the root of all evil. And that's a blanket statement, but he's saying that the pursuit of riches is a motivation or can be connected to every conceivable sin. That's what he says. The love of money is the root of all evil. I mean, I don't know how you, how you reframe that. That's a pretty big statement. So when James wrote back in, in, in chapter 4, verse 16, Now you rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. He was lumping riches into the category of boasting. Because that's what he's been talking about. He's talking about you have a God complex. You're fighting. You're speaking evil of one another. You're making these plans without God. And, and all that rejoicing, all the things that you're boasting about, it's evil. And then he goes directly into, hey, and by the way, pay attention, rich men, because you fall in the same category. And you might think, well, I'm not wealthy, so I can check out. I'll just put my AirPods in and listen to my favorite music till the message is over, like some of the teenagers try to do. 
You know, you say, this message is not for me, but just a minute. Remember that Paul wrote, did he write that money is the root of all evil? What did he say? The what? The love of money is the root of all evil. Is it possible to love something you don't have? Uh, Yes. Is it possible to be in pursuit of something that you don't have? Well, that one's really obvious because if you don't have it, you, you, I mean, if you already have it, you can't pursue it. You've already got it. So is it possible to be obsessed and motivated by something you don't have? Absolutely. So if you're pursuing or motivated to attain money, it means that you don't already have it. Therefore, the pursuit of money is not only dangerous for those who have it, it's dangerous for those who don't have it. And I would say that all of us in here would say, well, that applies to me. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In verse 21 of that same passage, he said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Nothing more clearly reveals the condition of a person's heart than how they view money and possessions. That's what Jesus said. That's what James is saying. So what is James then With his method of giving tests in this book. Remember, we haven't talked about that in a while, but he would go through and give us a test. Here's the test of of this, the test of this. And he's trying to get us to reveal our faith, to see if it's genuine or not. And he's saying then, by coming to James 5, is one way to reveal your genuine faith is that your life is not lived for wealth and possessions. And somebody who lives for wealth and possessions, somebody who that is their ultimate goal, um, they are... Uh, they are contradicting their claim to genuine discipleship. So if you live for those things, what does that say about your faith? And I would submit to you that according to James, one who is inordinately in pursuit of wealth and possessions betrays his own testimony of salvation. Owning possessions is not wrong for a Christian. I'll say that. I mean, you you talk about, I mean, when, when God blessed Solomon... What's one of the areas in which God blessed Solomon? Riches, wealth, not just wisdom, but he blessed Solomon with wisdom, with wealth. I mean, he blessed David with wealth. I mean, he, he blessed Job. Job had all kinds of wealth. And God walked with Job probably like nobody else on the earth at that time. I mean, so it's not that God says that owning possessions is wrong, but being owned by possessions is wrong for a Christian. It's not about the possessions, it's about the attitude toward them. And we must protect ourselves against materialism because a materialistic Christian can't also be concerned at the same time about spiritual things. I'm going to say that again, we must protect ourselves against materialism because a materialistic Christian can't also be concerned with spiritual things at the same time. We'll go back to Matthew 6, no man can serve two masters. He'll hate the one and love the other, hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and stuff is the idea there. So look what he says, how he starts this passage in James 1, or James 5 verse 1. Go to now, you rich man, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. And here's the main, the idea that he starts with is judgment is coming for the materialistic person. We have here two views of riches. You've got man's view of riches and God's view of riches. Man's view of riches is this. Those who are wealthy have it made. 
They've got everything they want. They live in luxury. They never have to worry about bills. And we assume they live in ease and that they're just laughing all the time about everything and everything's joyful and everything's fun. Like a beer commercial, you know, and everyone looks like they're having just the greatest time and it's so far from reality when a group of people are getting drunk together. We assume they're living in ease and they're laughing and happy and they go anywhere they want. They drive what they like. They live where they want to. They have no problems. But let me remind you even of a story that's been big in the news this, this week, uh, Alex Murdaugh, maybe you've heard about this story if you've been following headlines. It's from a prominent family of lawyers back in South Carolina. For 86 years, uh, members of his family um, served as district attorneys in that area. And so very well known. Um, they, they had such influence in that area that in a five-county region of South Carolina, uh, they called it Murdaugh Country. Because that's how much influence, that's how much control these district attorneys had. They were worth millions of dollars, all the power, all the influence you could want. And yet in recent years, the family has just been plagued by, by controversy after, after controversy. Both of his sons in separate incidents were involved in a boating accident. They were driving the boat and, and their, two of their friends, two separate friends, two separate times, um, two separate friends were killed in a boating accident that Alex Murdaugh's sons were driving in. Alex Murdaugh embezzled millions of dollars in a fraud scheme. He was being charged for that. Then he was being charged with stealing money from clients after they had died. The list goes on and on and on. Wrongful death lawsuits, tax evasion lawsuits, a murder for hire in a staged suicide scheme. I mean, the guy had all kinds of stuff going on, but the worst is what came out in the last few months. It happened in 2021, and a trial was just this week, but the, the last few weeks, the worst was that this 52-year-old man, Alex Murdoch, um, who had everything handed to him, had everything he could ever want, had a large estate, had lots of influence, had a legacy from his family, but he was found guilty just this week of killing his 22-year-old son and his wife on their own property with a shotgun. And when you hear stories like that, and I'll bring that, him back up later, but when you hear stories like that and, and so many other stories about wealthy people who have nothing but heartache, it, verse 1 starts to make a lot more sense. Riches aren't all they're cracked up to be. And I want to say that passionately to our young people. Because young people, you think that if I had money, all my problems would be solved. But I would submit to you, you'll have more problems the more money that you make if you don't control it. I mean, people that win the lottery, how many have you heard about that commit suicide, lose it all? Um, their marriage and the families fall apart. They end up killing or embezzling or doing something awful. And money will not solve your problems. And if you will seek the kingdom of God first... He'll take care of the peripherals and you, you just follow God, serve God, let him take care of all the other things. And I'm telling you, that's where true joy and contentment will be found. And I, can t I know that some of you right now don't believe me and you don't really care. You're going to go make it rich. If you pursue riches, it will consume your life. 
Judgment is coming to those that are, that are consumed with riches. And there's a subculture. You know, we, we had a, a, a young boy in our home. Uh, his name was Jamar East. And we, I mean, we just wanted to adopt him. He was a teenager in our church there in Oklahoma. And, and we just loved him so much. But I remember having conversations with him. And he was into the rap scene. And, and, and he thought those guys with the big chains and all the money in the rap videos. And, and you know, he thought that if, if you have money, you have everything. I mean, how many of those kind of people have you heard killing each other on the streets still? Still fighting it out over gang involvement and things like that. It doesn't solve your problems. It creates more. So James says, go to now. Listen up. Pay attention. And the idea is that instead of boasting about what you have... You should stop and consider that what living for those riches is going to cost you. He said to weep and to howl, it means to shriek and wail. It's the sound of a person that's stricken with terror. And, and, and I, I love to just kind of stop somewhere in the hallway of my house at night and wait for my wife to walk by. Any other cruel husbands like that in here? I don't say anything. I just stand there. And she walks by and sees me finally. When she gets close enough, all I do is this. And she gets on to me like I did something wrong. I didn't say anything. I'm just standing there in the dark hallway <laughs> waiting for her. That's all. You know, when she shrieks or wails, it's terror. Well, you know, the idea is that riches you should view riches like somebody that's scared of them. I mean, I almost stepped on a rattlesnake one time and the sound that came out of my mouth, I'm so glad nobody was recording. <laughs> I was full of terror. You know what? You young people, you should be afraid of riches like that because if you don't, uh, if, you, uh, if you try to seek riches or pursue riches and you get them, uh, if you don't control it, they'll consume your life. You should be as afraid of making a bunch of money as somebody stepping on a rattlesnake. And, and I know all of you say, that's silly. I want to make money. Well, you don't understand what it does to a person. I'm giving you Bible here tonight. And so don't contradict what the Bible says here. A materialistic life leads to misery. And the idea is that riches aren't going to help you when you stand before God in judgment. See, someday you're going to stand, all of us, we're going to stand before God in judgment and we'll be judged. And, and we think, if I think I'm going to pull out some Benjamins and impress God with what I had in my bank account, it's not going to help me at all. A materialistic life leads to misery. It gives me, it means that I've given myself to temporary things and I live for the now and I regret it later. So James gives these four consequences that take place when you're owned by what you own. Four consequences, three consequences, sorry, that take place when you are owned by what you own. Number one, you're going to hoard, you will hoard wastefully. You will hoard wastefully. Look at verses two and three. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered. And the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh. As it were fire, ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. James refers to the, the three, in that culture, the three signs of wealth, and that was food, clothing, and money. 
He says first, he says your riches are corrupted. If you look up the word uh, corrupted, the word is rotten or destroyed. And, and most people believe that he, when he says riches are corrupted, he's talking about your storehouses. What you have in store is corrupted. They believe he's talking about food. And as I studied it, it seems like that way to me that he's talking about all the food that you have. It's going rotten. It's going bad. All the corn and grain, the implication is they had more than they could eat, but rather than share it, they just let it go bad. I mean, if you've ever taken a swig of curdled milk, it's terrible. But you know, I, I believe that's probably a situation that mostly only countries like America deal with. Because in most places, if you've got a gallon of milk, that's a precious commodity, you're not going to let it go to waste. But we have more food in our fridges that we can eat. We take leftover boxes home from most restaurants that we go to. And we've got more than we need. And that's what he's saying is that you've got all this food. And rather than giving it away, you just let it go to waste. It, it doesn't last. He says your garments are moth-eaten. Clothing was very important in the Eastern culture. We already read in James chapter 2 how people would come in with a certain kind of clothing and they'd be treated a certain way because of it. And, and in our day and age, you know, you don't have to be rich or poor to wear a certain brand anymore. I mean, you can, you can find that certain brand at Ross or someplace like that and look like you've got money. And it's not as easy to tell these days. It wasn't like that um, back then. Uh, you know, honestly, there, there, I mean, there's so much hanging in a rich person's closet. He's saying you can't possibly wear it all and it just sits there and hangs and it's going to be eaten by moths. And I remember going to my granny's closets and my papa and granny's closets when I was little, my dad's parents, and they always smelled like mothballs. I mean, I, you remember mothballs? I mean, we got people that maybe still use them. And, and uh, you know, that generation it was a weird thought to me. Um, you know, I thought that when I was a kid, I was like, are they made of moths? Is that, it's a moth ball? I just know they smell weird. But that generation, clothing was important to them. They didn't have closets full of extra clothing. And so their clothes mattered. Their clothes needed to last. And let's be honest, most of us have more clothes in our closets and dressers than we need. And rather than share it or donate it, it just hangs there. I have suits in my closet that are dusty. Because I, I just don't wear them anymore. So then James says, not only that, your gold and silver is cankered. Which means corroded. And you know what a, a corroded coin looks like? It's, that's the idea. They would rather, here's what he's saying. You'd rather have your food go to waste than share it. You're hoarding it. You'd, have, you'd rather have too many clothes than you can wear. You're hoarding it. You'd rather, have, you'd rather have money that just sits there and never gets spent and it corrodes than you would use it to bless other people. Uh, it, but he's pointing out very clearly that all this stuff that you're priding yourself in will not last. I mean, think about it. A coin has a, a, an inscription on it. It's a reflection of a person that lives 70, maybe 80 years and makes some kind of a difference. They lived and they died. They were temporary. And James's point is, why hold on to it? That coin is as temporary as the inscription on it. That person doesn't last forever. That coin won't last forever. So use it to be a blessing while you have it because it's all temporary anyway. Hoarded wealth decays. And it's not only that, that the stuff is affected, okay? If you've got too much food or clothing um, or garments or, or, or money and you don't use it, it doesn't just affect the stuff. 
it affects the person who owns it. James says, the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. And I, I believe he's probably referring to judgment that their attitude toward wealth, and we'll come back to that thought later, will be revealed when they stand before Christ. It will be a witness against them. That they lived independently of God and they gave their lives to temporary things and worse, hoarded those things for themselves and they just went to waste. They had all of this stuff they could have been a blessing with and yet they just let it kind of go to waste. So when you're owned by what you own, you will hoard wastefully. But second, you will seek to gain wrongfully. You'll seek to gain wrongfully. wrongfully. If you met somebody who would, who would earn a, a, a dollar no matter what it took and no matter what method and no matter who they had to step on, well, when a person is driven by wealth, they'll do whatever it takes, no matter who they have to step over or push down or knock off the corporate ladder to get there. James talks about these people in, in, in verses um, four, in verse four, and he talks about these people hiring laborers who've reaped down their fields, which he, he says, uh, which is of you kept back by fraud. Those people cry, and, and, and yet they knew that this was the wrong way to approach it in Deuteronomy and in, Le, in Leviticus as well. God told them how to treat the daily field workers because they would pay them on a daily basis. So the field workers would come in, and they would work the field, and at the end of the day, the, the landowner would give money to those, and they would go home. They would buy food on the way home and go feed their families. They depended on getting paid every night. And so God says, pay him by sundown because he's hungry and he depends on that money. Living day to day was a process in that culture. It was part of the culture. I mean, we live week to week, many of us, but day to day, can you imagine how, how troubling that could be if you can't find work? I'm not paying a work. A worker meant they didn't eat that night. But a man driven by riches wouldn't care. You know, can you imagine working a full day and the, and the arrangement is at the end of the day, you're going to get paid and you're going to go be able to get money uh, to, go to, the, to go to the market and buy food for your family and you're going to have food that night. So can you imagine you work a full day, you're tired, you gave your best and your boss comes up and says, I have an important dinner date tonight. I really need to impress some clients. So I'm not going to be paying you today. Sorry. So you go home hungry while he takes some friends out to Maury's for a steak. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, when you're driven by money, you don't have much concern for other people. If you live your life to gain, there are no levels you won't stoop to in order to get more. You'll step on anybody. You'll lie about anything. You'll work whatever angle you have to. And look down at verse 6. It's the same kind of thought. And this is even worse. In verse 6 he says, Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. They went so far as to abuse and even put believers to death. I mean, like we saw this morning, it was the rich and powerful Pharisees that called for Jesus' death. It was the rich and powerful Pharisees that called for Stephen to be stoned. They were protecting their kingdoms of the law. When you're owned by what you own, you will hoard wastefully. You will seek to gain wrongfully. And number three, you will live selfishly. You will live selfishly. Look at verse 5. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. These wicked rich, they've essentially increased their wealth by robbery. 
by hoarding. That's how they've done it. And to make it all worse. So it would be one thing. If you got it by robbery and you got it by, by, by hoarding. And it would be one thing if you went out and used it for something. Um, that could may, maybe be a benefit for somebody else. But to make it all worse, they took that unjustly acquired wealth and they became self-indulgent with it. They used it for themselves. They lived, in, when he says um, that ye have lived, ye have lived in pleasure on the earth. It's the idea is soft, extravagant luxury. That's the idea. And, and it came at the expense of other people. In other words, you get to live the way you live because of other people. And it's just all about how you can enjoy it. It's not like even like Robin Hood. And I'm not saying Robin Hood, um, you know, the idea of Robin Hood is great. It, I mean, it's wrong to steal, but at least Robin Hood was robbing the rich to give to the poor. And at least you might could say it was a noble motive. I'm not saying go do that, okay? Just an example. Um, you know, don't start listening now, okay? Um, when you're owned by what you own, you use it all for yourself. It's like you don't really care to give. You don't really care to be a blessing. It's just all about you and what I can do with this. It's, I, I want to use it for me. The phrase wanton um, means the pursuit of pleasure. And one, one, one described it as this, plunging headlong into debauchery. You're, it's like the prodigal son. It's like, you know what? I'm all in. I'm just going to go party. I'm going to find the friends that will party with me. I'm going to spend all my money and get up the next morning and find another party. And all my relationships are just going to be about having fun until your money dries up. But I'm just going to plunge headlong into debauchery. That's what wanton means. He says, you've lived in pleasure on the earth. You've been wanton. You've just done whatever you want. And he says, look at this. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. And this reminds me of Smithfield. You know the smell of Smithfield. And some days it's like you don't smell it. And some days it's like Smithfield is next door to me. Just depending on the wind or whatever. You know, and those, those hogs go over to Smithfield and, and they don't go when they're small. They go when they're nice and fat and they're full and they're, they're, they're nourished. They're fattened up. That's the idea here that James is talking about. He says, you're like one of those hogs that's getting fattened up for the processor. And when you're owned by what you own, you are simply providing more evidence against you in the day of judgment. You're just building a case against yourself. You're fattening yourself up, nourishing yourself just to get ready for the judgment. And one tells of visiting Rome in the palace of Nero. In the main dining room, there was a well-like structure in the middle of the dining room. And it was explained that Nero and his guests would gorge themselves full at the banquet table. Then go to the well and vomit so they could just go back to the table and eat again. You know, if that doesn't describe our culture... I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to plunge headlong into debauchery. I'm going to give myself to the pleasure of the moment. That's all I care about. I don't care about the consequences. I don't care about anybody else. I'm going to take it, rob and hoard whatever I can and use it for myself. But here's how God views it when you're owned by what you own. I mean, obviously, it's not good to be owned by what you own. You've got these... Uh, you'll hoard wastefully, you'll gain wrongfully, and you'll live selfishly. But here's how God views it. Look at back at verse 4. I just want you to notice this. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears 
of the Lord of Sabaoth. You say, well, what does that mean? It's not the word Sabbath. It's, it, this is a, a Greek word. It, it, it's basically, it's the, word, the phrase that the Old Testament uses to describe the Lord as the Lord of hosts. And if you've ever read about the Lord of hosts, then anytime the Lord of hosts is used, then, then it's used in a way to say, this is how strong God is. Basically, the idea, God has an army. God is mighty. And it's interesting that James uses the Lord of hosts as the terminology here to warn the rich against their treatment, about their treatment of the poor. In other words, this is not something God takes lightly. The Lord of hosts hears their cry and he is the one that will judge you. It's not the God of love. It's not the God of mercy. It's the Lord of hosts. That's how seriously God views it when the rich look at the poor and step on them. They look at the poor and say, I don't care about you. It's all about me. I will pursue money. I will pursue stuff. Listen, if judgment day is coming, I want the God of love. But, if it, but honestly, the rich are going to get the Lord of hosts. James wants them to know God takes seriously this mindset. So how do you Okay, I don't want this mindset. I don't know about you. So how, how do you become released from this? Well, if you have this, then I, I think you ought to choose to practice these four things. This is practical, but it kind of goes along with the outline so far. Number one, you ought to give obediently. Give obediently. See, the more, and you can look around the room here, and there's a lot of people here uh, you know, we're ten, we tend to be hoarders. We want to keep what we have. But there's a lot of people in this room, and they, they'll tell you their life is what it is. It's blessed like it is because a long time ago they said, you know what, I'm not going to be a hoarder. I'm going to be a giver. And, I, and, you know, we, I would say the same thing. Here, the thing is, the more that you give, the more you realize how much more rewarding it is to give than to hoard. Hoarding, yeah, you've got this stuff but it's going to go to waste. But if you give, then your stuff doesn't go to waste. It goes to bless somebody else. And everything you have belongs to God anyway, which is the reason this attitude is so offensive to him. So give obediently. Two, invest eternally. Stop spending most of your resources on things that are temporary. Find something that lasts and give yourself to it. And I don't just mean a charity because charities don't last forever. I mean the work of God. Invest, so give obediently, invest eternally, serve selflessly. This will help us in the mindset, when the mindset is what's in it for me. And that, you know, listen, that can really hinder a church's spirit. Is that when everybody comes in and they say, I'm a consumer, I want to see what you can bless me with. And we need more who say, what can I do instead of what can I get? So serve selflessly. So give obediently, invest eternally, serve selflessly, and fourth, dwell contentedly. Dwell contentedly. According to Hebrews 13, the key to beating covetousness is to choose to be content. You know, we, we need more uh, folks right here at our church, but, but in our country, in our churches, to, to stop pursuing what they don't have and just stop and be thankful for what they do have. Because when you compare what you have to the rest of the world, you're not poor. 
It applies to the rich and the poor. It's not about what you have. It's about your attitude toward what you have. And like I already mentioned, we are in the top tier, the top percent when it comes to the whole world. And in God's eyes, you know, the wealthy might be sitting right here in this sanctuary, which means we all have a choice to make. I, I can either pursue temporary pleasure or I can enjoy eternal blessings. I can either pursue temporary pleasure or I can enjoy eternal blessings. You don't get both. And I told you I'd talk about Alex Murdoch a little bit more. I, I read the testimony of one of the jurors this week and he said that one of the key pieces of evidence against him was a video that his son took right before he, he, he was killed. See, that night, they had dog kennels on their property. And that night, Alex Murdaugh said that he was with his, one of his parents that has dementia, so it's an alibi that you couldn't prove either way. He said that he was somewhere else, that he didn't go down to the dog kennels at all that night. Yet he didn't realize that, on his, that his son on his phone had re recorded a video. And in that video, you can hear Alex Murdaugh's voice speaking with his wife. And the video was taken down at the dog kennels. And he said of all the evidence, there was other evidence that could have helped. But of all the evidence that convinced them that Alex Murdaugh was guilty, it's when they heard his own voice. And his own voice became evidence against him. And I, I, I really think that's a close connection to what James is getting to here. Look back um, at verse 3. He says, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. The end of verse 4, it says, and the cries of them which, may, which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You know, this is interesting, is... We can say that money doesn't consume us. But when we stand before God in the judgment, he says, in essence, that our attitude toward money is going to be a witness against us. When we stand there, it's as if this happens. And I don't know how it happens, but, but it's as if our money will start talking. And our money in that moment, we can say, oh, God, I really, I didn't, have a, I didn't have an inordinate love for money, you know. And I just wonder if somehow God in his miracle-making way will say, well, I actually have a witness that proves otherwise. And our money talks. And our money is a witness against us or for us. It either commends us or it condemns us. And if your money could talk in that moment, what's it going to say about you? Oh, he watched every dollar. He followed Dave Ramsey to a T. I'm not downing Dave Ramsey. She had the nicest clothes. They took the best trips. I'm not saying those are bad things. But if that's all that your money has to say about you when you stand before God, I think you're going to find yourself sorely disappointed. I mean, to me, I'd rather have my money. If my money's going to talk about me and be evidence for or against me, I'd rather it say he cared about the kingdom. He didn't have a lot in his bank account, but there are souls literally standing here right now. 
because he used his resources to reach people. If my money could talk, I'd want it to say, she, she truly, or if your money, she truly invested in reaching the people at her workplace. If money could talk, I want it to say something like, he used his money to help build the church. And if I'm going to stand there and what I did with, with riches is going to be a witness against me, I want it to be on God's side. I want it to say, yes, he didn't die with a whole lot down there. But if you look at his spiritual bank account, it's overflowing. See, your judgment experience will include your attitude toward money. I really believe that. And it will either witness that you pursued the temporary or that you invested in the eternal. You decide how your money, how your pursuit of riches, how your treatment of wealth, you decide today how one day your money talks about you. And I hope that you'll say, I want it to say, they invested in the things that matter to God. Let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I just want to remind you tonight, it's not just about what you have. It's about your attitude toward what you have. And it's not even just about what you don't have. It's about your attitude toward what you don't have. This is, this is applicable to the rich and it's applicable to the poor. And that means that everybody in between, which would include most of us here today, we need a lesson on this, especially as Americans, because we haven't made much better than we think we do. And I'm, I'm praying that, that God will teach us as a church to pursue the things that matter. We could live for temporary pleasures or we could enjoy one day eternal blessings. The choice is yours. What would your money say about you if we could hear it talk tonight. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.